The following podcast is proudly brought to you by Vite Ramen. Use the link in the description and use offer code BROKENSILICON to get 10% off tasty, healthy, and easy-to-make ramen. And also use the offer code BROKENSILICON to get 25% off windows, keys, and die shrink to get 3% off everything else on the website at cdkeyoffer.com. Now on with the show. Welcome to Broken Silicon, a gaming hardware podcast. I am your host, Tom, and today is going to be another one of those episodes like when Jason Fields came on or when I had the, well, what was just called the government engineer who decided to remain anonymous came on where we're going to talk about things aligned to gaming, but not gaming directly. You know, Broken Silicon, every other week is a guest episode, and sometimes when it's on subject, when it is affecting us, I like to talk about things that can affect gaming, but if we're being honest, for the subjects we're going to talk about today, I have much bigger ramifications, b- bigger bigger worries of, about what could happen with supply chains, with um, various countries and how they interact with each other right now, outside of just whether or not you can get a PlayStation 5, although certainly <laughs> what we're about to talk about would affect that. Um, but yeah, so let me uh, let my guest introduce himself. Uh, hi, my, my name is John. I run the Asianometry YouTube channel. Um, yeah, that's me. (laughs) Well, so, um, I always like to ask this. I I looked back at your channel from about a year ago, uh, actually five years ago. It seemed to mostly talk about geopolitics and, and then eventually more and more economic Subjects involving Taiwan, China, other countries around Asia. Eventually, it seems to have transitioned more and more over time into a channel that touches on the semiconductor industry, which I think you would you touch on no matter what because it's such a large part of economics in uh, in, uh, in Asia right now. But I guess I'm curious, you know, what what made you start the YouTube channel? What made you start with those initial subjects that seem to be mostly just politics? And what made you, from my perspective, tell me if I'm wrong to characterize this way, transition more and more to talking about the semiconductor industry? Hmm. No, no, no. I think it's fine. It's a, it's a fair characterization. And I've, I've told the story a lot, which is kind of, I kind of hone it. I try to make it more fun every time. The Asian Armatry started off as like a travel vlog. Like I would go oh. hiking. I, I moved to... I was I worked in the Silicon Valley for about ten years after college, and mm-hmm. um, you know after ten years you get you get tired of it, and you just say I was I was burnt out, and I thought I, I think I'm going to move to Asia, and I basically interviewed for like Singapore, uh, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Shanghai, and Taiwan gave me the best offer, and I just I went there. Um, so Asianometry was basically kind of like a travel vlog, so that it could get you know started and explain or show my family what i was doing back at back over in taiwan so i would go like hiking with friends or try or going to this like mad random museum and take video of that and put it to like cheesy techno music mm-hmm. i was pretty cringe um 
But you like, should see how bad my original video was, by the way. I was like holding a glass of wine and I had sunglasses <laughs> on because I thought I needed gimmicks. I never released that video. Like it sat dormant for six months and then I made other content because I <laughs> I just knew deep down this this is going to suck. And I found out you really don't need gimmicks. You just need to make content people want to watch that you find interesting. G no more gimmick. You know, gimmicks are not necessary. I agree. I agree. I think it's just like one of those things where you kind of realize that part of the reason people why watch or a, a channel is that they get something out of it. And once you know what that is, I think you, you benefit from it. Um, I, I think a lot about the YouTube content space. Like, what does it mean to be a content maker? And that's that's actually kind of something I've been thinking about. Um, the transition came was because I, I live in Taiwan. So I'm surrounded by people who mm -hmm. talk about TSMC, talk about like just different parts of this uh, ecosystem. And as the semiconductor shortage happened during COVID. So, you know, mm -hmm. I started out kind of like a history buff and I was just doing videos about geopolitics, Chinese and Taiwanese history. I think that's a lot of, that gets you a lot of grief for not a lot of gain. Um, the comments are absolutely like mental, um, mm -hmm. mental in like a, not sometimes like a one that just calls you names, I think is a, is a, at least they have a sense of grounding, you know? Um, so I eventually kind of, when the semiconductor kind of crunch happened, I, I thought a little bit about kind of this, the space and kind of started just writing and doing some videos about it based on things I could reach research and just conversations I was having with Taiwanese around me. Um, it was fine. It was, it was, it just happened. I was very lucky. I, I just happened to be here when the company, um, the space it's in, you know, and now everyone's starting to talk about semiconductors and just, I just rode a, an interesting wave. And while at the same time I get to kind of fulfill my own curiosity, it's, it's fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's just, if I, if I were to paraphrase then kind of what you're saying is, look, you, you did content that you thought was interesting over time that moved more and more from less travel blog, vlogging, if you will, to like, you know, history, things that you find interesting in the region. And then over time, you started to focus more and more on the stuff you're around, which you're in Taiwan, TSMC, semiconductor industry. And you also probably found that focusing on those subjects, instead of focusing on the history of the CCP in China, also got you more views and less angry comments. And so why would you not focus on that if you're interested in all of these subjects anyways, right? Exactly. I mean, yeah, it's it was one of those. Yeah, don't read those comments for those early videos. They're, they're rough. <laughs> no one has to remind me how insane people get in the comments uh, some uh, I, i'll stop there um <laughs> <laughs> I, I there's so many anecdotes i'm like but i i just know the pandora's box i'm opening if i even acknowledge some types of people i've come across um like let me ask you this though um i i think this is kind of a fun opening question and I had on, I believe it was listed as, uh, or, or referenced as a tech consultant. He also wanted to remain at least semi-anonymous. He also lives in Taiwan. As a previous guest I had on, he, he had a lot of things to say about misconceptions about business, these companies in Taiwan, like just in general, whether it's a company, whether it's TSMC, whether it's just Taiwanese culture in general, like what is a, uh, what's a big misconception you see people outside of that region make all the time about TSMC or Taiwan or something? Because I'm sure you have some uh, thoughts on that. Yeah, I get, I get a lot of 
I think disregarding like the the takes. I think the weird thing is like when you post a video about when I post a video about TSMC or Taiwan, the first couple days of comments are like quite reasoned and rational, and then they get increasingly unhinged. I think the mm-hmm. you if you kind of roll out the unhinged stuff is like moving t- TSMC out of Taiwan, um, that sort of stuff, or uh, Apple buying TSMC. These sort of things, I think. Uh, those are some misconceptions I probably they're just just not possible. But I think the misconception the thing that I think I see most about Taiwan itself is that whenever I travel abroad and I haven't traveled mm-hmm. abroad in a while and I meet with other people who know that I live there and I think the first thing they ask me is like are you okay? Like are you worried? Are you like um I I think the I think what I recognize is that a lot of people see Taiwan only in the context of like a China invasion. Mm. China mm. war, China like the, you always see the two as like a pair, and I think the the toughest thing to kind of kind of gently discuss about that is kind of like um, you know Taiwan is a uh, trying to see Taiwan without seeing the China invasion part, and that's kind of it's hard it's very relevant of course and it's a, it's a big deal, but you know it's 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 uh, there is stuff about. Taiwan that I enjoy that is not related to that sort of stuff. <laughs> not everything on everyone's mind is always being viewed through the context of, oh, what do you want to get for dinner tonight? Oh, I don't know. What if China invades? That's not what everyone's right. <laughs> always thinking about, right? Exactly. Yeah, I've, I've heard people say similar things like that in South Korea. They're like, you know, we're not always thinking about North Korea. It's always there. It's a major discussion in any political debate if people are running for election but it's not it's just one thing that people discuss it's not exactly. everything the, the, interestingly though I, I hear similar things out of people who lived in and still do many of them live in ukraine though where they were like yeah that was just one thing russia we always thought might might not and then they did though so i guess i i guess you probably get that a lot more often now that it did happen in one area right yeah I mean, it got things got pretty dark. I think in the um, in the kind of days after the Ukraine invasion, I think um, it there is there was no rational kind of reason for thinking, but just there was kind of like a a mood throughout myself and all the people I knew, kind of kind of overhanging all of us in, in wake of these news and what people were talking about. It got dark. It got dark. Yeah, because it's like. So but you can't live your life like that. You can't just live every day kind of, you know, life goes on kind of thing. You can't just spend your whole life waiting for something like that to happen. You know, it's funny because it, it, it hasn't happened in South Korea, but then it did happen in Ukraine. And so I'm sure it's like, well, I guess sometimes this does happen still. But still, people in Ukraine to this day say, well, yeah, but we weren't taking it seriously all the time because, like, what's the material point of that? Like, we're, <laughs> we have a life to live. If it happens... We'll address it when it happens. But right now, there's just really no point. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's probably one misconception. I mean, they're more smaller ones. Like, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it's 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 larger than you think. Um, I've noticed that, too, looking at it. It there's a it is its own country. It's 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 not tiny. Like, it's bigger. Not than tiny. A, it's, yeah. yeah, it's not tiny. Um, it's quite uh, it's, it's 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 larger than you think. And it's it's it's. There's some parts of it that I think don't look like a very kind of like a technically advanced society. Like if you go mm-hmm. to some parts of the mountains or some villages, it looks pretty like in the 30s or 40s. But then 
there's some areas that look kind of way up there with like your average you know, Irvine or something. So it's, it's nice. It's a very there's still, diverse there's area. There's still rural areas like any country has. Like there's still yeah. your rural areas. And yeah. it, it's got enough space for that to have room for rural areas, <laughs> contrary <laughs> to what some people think. Well, yeah. you, you touched on something uh, a few minutes ago that I think is something I want to directly address. Timo H. writes in from the Moore's Laws at Patreon. He says, hi, Tom and John. I'm most interested in John's take on what makes Taiwan a unique place for semiconductor high-end manufacturing, research, and all that is needed to stay bleeding edge in this industry. To my understanding, John lives in Taiwan. So what is his view on TSMC's CEO commenting that this unique hub cannot be moved elsewhere, suggesting something in that mix of culture, research, and perhaps location as well is ideal for this industry to be based there? Which you said that, like you can't just move Taiwan, I mean, or you can't just move TSMC, right? Like what makes it unique? What makes, you know, TSMC do its best there? Um, first, I, I want to say that wasn't the CEO, it was CC Wei. I think it's Mark Dio, the chairman. Okay. And in Asia, the chairman tends to be higher than the CEO. Um, I think when it talks about what TSMC in Taiwan is that, um, there's kind of like this interesting interplay between, well, first we need to acknowledge, yeah, semiconductor manufacturing is a global ecosystem, right? Apple's in the U.S., they need TSMC in Taiwan. TSMC in Taiwan, they need ASML in Netherlands. Netherlands mm-hmm. ASML needs Zeiss in Germany and Symer in the United States and so on. It's like a big cycle. That being said, I think like, you know, Taiwan holds a lot of like comparative advantages in semiconductor manufacturing. And it's drawn from kind of Taiwan's history in being a electronics assembly uh, hub before China was and before South Korea was. A um, lot of the system integrators and the assembly companies, Foxconn, Compal, all these other guys, they are still in Taiwan, like they're headquartered in Taiwan. So you have a situation where you have lots of this very strong ecosystem all put together, right? And then, so beyond like the economic ecosystem mm-hmm. part, you have like a culture part too, right? Um, TSMC is, uh, I, there's no, the Chinese for it, I think is the, the Silicon shield and mm-hmm. people, when they go to work for TSMC, it's not just like parents saying you're working for the, you're working for the biggest company, you're very safe or something like that. And they do do that. They're like saying the whole force of society pushes your smartest people into electrical engineering, into essentially TSMC. And, um, but beyond that, you're not just working for a very safe company. You're working for the Silicon shield. You're, you're working for uh, essentially some form of like the glory of, of Taiwan. Well, it's kind of like, right. If someone works at Boeing or Raytheon in the United States, it's like, yes, this is a private company. Yes. They also make some of the most advanced weapon systems for the United States. So there's a certain amount of prestige to that, but times 10 kind of probably working at TSMC, right? Exactly. Cause there is no, yeah, there is no Boeing. Like you know, there, there, there is only one TSMC in Taiwan. Taiwan only has that sort of company there. So mm-hmm. Um, it's very intensified here. And I think that translates into kind of like a very sort of high achieving culture, I would say. I, I think <clears throat> when you've seen, I, I, I think you, when you will see situations of TSMC trying to build fabs outside of Taiwan, 
they're not as special anymore. And you will, I think something to notice is that they don't achieve as much from there. Um, and they generally partly because they're trying to hold back, but I would also generally say it's because, you know, people in Taiwan work harder for TSMC. Mm-hmm. Now, I, a person I had on recently, the, ch- the tech consultant, he's, he's from Europe, but he lives in Taiwan, he's lived there for a very long time. He told me that he sees some, is there any sort of a, because to a certain degree, what you're describing is the opposite of what he felt. Now, maybe this is just his experience, but he thought there was some sort of, maybe not at TSMC, but at least in a lot of businesses around there, complacency around being number one. Do you see that at all there? Or is that just not at all what you've kind of, is that not what you've seen? Have you not seen any of that there? I think I see a lot of people complaining about how hard it is to work at TSMC. And mm-hmm. I can't, it's hard to, 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 to jive that sort of, those complaints, which are almost universal. I think everyone, everyone complains about it. I, I think it's hard to jive with the notion that they're being complacent. They also don't really talk to anyone. So like, they don't, they don't talk to the government. They don't talk to me. They don't talk to like the, like the higher ed ups. They, they generally don't want to talk to you. Mm-hmm. So it's hard for us from here, us regular people to just get an understanding of what's actually going on. Are they being complacent? What's the culture like? They just, they don't talk to you. Like, they don't care. Clearly, TSMC is like the leading foundry in the company in the world in terms of the level, the advanced, the level of advancement its technology has. But I think he was just like saying, like, there's just some sort of managers or something. It was like more of like a culture of some of the workforce. Obviously, the company itself drives very hard and for otherwise they wouldn't be number one. Right. Right. (laughs) But um, let me. Let me pivot to this question here, because I, I wonder what you can say to this. Queen Sweep writes in, he says, hey, Tom and John, given that a lot of foundries have plateaued at specific nodes because of the cost of developing better nodes becomes unaffordable, has there been any focus on improving the manufacturing technologies and techniques to make things cheaper and easier, not just more advanced? From what I understand, most of the advancements seem to be focused on performance or getting semiconductors functional at a smaller node size. Also, do you think Intel's in danger of joining the list of foundries that plateaued soon? Is the money from the Chips app going to be Chips Act going to be enough to if they hit another rough patch with node shrinks? Well, I think I think I want to actually focus on the first half of his questions um, because I don't know if you've heard something similar, but a couple of my contacts a couple of weeks ago started warning me that some of the really old foundries, um, well, not even that old. Like honestly, I think thirty-two nanometer and smaller is still technically considered cutting edge or something, but like. Like smaller nodes, uh, larger nodes, I should say, than that. I've heard that a lot of them are starting to come offline and that they're just going to start closing a lot of foundries down at some of these advanced companies that aren't 28 nanometer or smaller because they're just really old. It doesn't make business sense to focus on making like 65 nanometer anymore for some when they can just rapidly expand 28 nanometer. What that means is that a lot of the dirt cheap, like 65 nanometer chips you might put into a smart device, those aren't going to be cheap anymore. And, and I like a lot of people are wondering, like, can anyone just make, you know, 32 nanometer half the price instead of trying to make two nanometer? Like it, what I, I've kind of thrown a lot at you, but like, have you heard similar things about some of these older nodes being taken offline and that that's going to eliminate some of the cheapest options for smart devices? And do you see? TSMC or anyone else kind of driving to just make things cheaper, not just make the best node possible. 
I think it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a big question. I think trailing edge nodes covers like a broad spectrum. It's literally billions of chips. I would say TSMC, I think one of the reasons why these older fabs are closing is just because we don't have the equipment for them anymore, right? The 200 mm-hmm. millimeter wafers are a wafer fabs. That, the that was something a couple people mentioned to me and some of that historical knowledge of running just entirely different old equipment is being lost as people retire. Correct. And like, there are no standards, the standards weren't written and like, it's all kind of random and stuff like that. So some of these just, they have to, re- they have to close. I think on the, the flip side of that, this TSMC is they're, they're just spending money on building new fabs on, at, not at leading edge, but at like 28 or something like that. Right. There's mm-hmm. a new fab in, I think, Kaohsiung. They have that new fab in Kumamoto, Japan, which I, which I actually think is mostly for Sony. But the one mm-hmm. in Kaohsiung, if you kind of think about it right, if it turns out to be a gigafab, which it probably will be, that's like 100,000 wafers. That, that could replace a lot of closed older fabs. We'll have to see. I mean, we'll have to see how that all turns out. But um, I would say, like... It's hard to think about like a lot of these chips are already, I would say, pretty cheap. Like there's a mic, like your microcontroller, something like four, four or five dollars. I think at some point, like yields can only get so high. Uh, prices have to rise before something like that can actually turn out to be the case. If people actually want it, I would argue that like they should pay more for it. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe in this case, what the situation that people have been enjoying is a situation where. You have these highly depreciated fabs just churning out stuff at really low prices, and people got complacent looking for that. Um, I think we, if, if that, you know, if prices would go up, then maybe there'd be some more investment in trying to develop a better product worth a higher price. That's my personal take on it. Yeah, I mean, I guess. At a certain point, you just have to say the cart's never going to come before the horse. Like they'll make cheaper stuff when there's a need to. But right now, they're just, if you will, just milking these old fabs. But from what I've heard, the only reason they're really milking them is because they're already built. So they can. A lot of them aren't even that much cheaper than like a 28 nanometer fab. It's just because they're willing to run them until they break and then get rid of them. Like that's basically it. And once things get more expensive, well, then maybe we'll try to make cheaper nodes but until then i i I guess it probably it'd probably be temporary but that is just something i've been warned that in like four three years from now some of these dirt cheap smart devices on amazon that are like 20 dollar earbuds they might be 30 dollars because now they need to use 28 nanometer instead of like 65 or something right like and that that sucks but like you know ultimately that makes for a more healthier smart electronics economy where not everything is a is a certain type of thing reskinned. I think that's better. That might be better. Yeah. Well, speaking of trailing edge nodes, I did want to start getting into one of our main subjects here. One of your videos that caught my eye was in overview and analysis of what's going on with Russia's semiconductor industry or what's not going on. I mean, in your own words, how would you describe where, and and maybe it'd be best also just kind of touch on the semiconductor security of other countries as well, if you can. Like, where is Russia right now in terms of being able to produce its own wafers and semiconductor technology? Like, what's the best chip they could make? What's the best node they have? I think what I looked at, what I looked at in Russia was that they have something like three factories there. Probably Mm -hmm. the best they can do is like 45. I've seen some comments say they can do 22. 
I, I haven't really looked into it. It's not really worth looking into. I mean, no one gets excited over a 22 nanometer chip. I would say that like, since I released a video a couple months ago, I haven't really kind of done an update, but I reckon it's not that really changed. It's probably worsened to some extent. I mean, like a lot of this equipment comes from Europe, comes from Japan. I suppose they can buy some like legacy stuff, like, but I don't think Europeans or Japanese are sending people to kind of sending new equipment or are kind of sending people to maintain that equipment, right? Or to help help them to 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 maintain it. I think like I think there was recently I read uh there's the Commerce Secretary, they testified to Congress. They said like the they were looking at Russian military equipment and they're like the semiconductors in that equipment is filled with like stuff out of dishwashers and fridges. Mm-hmm. I think there there's a lot of dishwashers and fridges they can probably pull out for a while. Um so we'll see how that goes. I mean they I think they're I think they're in terms of like their technology, their technology manufacturing, I mean, and their semiconductor manufacturing, I mean, it's, I think it's over, basically. I mean, it's one of those kind of, I would never say this in a video because it's too definitive and I'll get crucified for it, but it's, it's done. I mean, like they, I mean, they got, they got dealt to like a terrible hand from the Soviets, but it's like, has there ever been like a relevant or globally successful electronics product to come out of like Russia or the Soviet Union? I mean. Like they don't have, they don't have like a domestic population big enough to kind of service that. Well, you won't put it in one of your videos, but you'll certainly let me put it in one of mine, apparently. Exactly. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, um, I mean, I think, I think in your video, you said they've arguably got like mass manufacturability of 65 nanometer right now, kind of, but it's kind like of. a kind of, you know, cause, cause it's not just like, I mean, we know they have equipment there. We know they make banknote. We can, we know we, for certain products, they can make, they can make those chips. I mean, does that, that's not a, but that's like, you know, that's the kind of stuff that every chip or like you have all 200 fabs across the world. And it's like the sort of fabs that almost every other country should have to some extent. Um, mm. my personal feelings that like, is there, is it, interesting or is it like can they build something like that possibly but like what are the what are they trying to achieve here i mean the russia's russia's economy is pumping gas and oil like that's mm-hmm. they don't make tech yeah i i know people some people won't want to hear that but it's like dude look at their economy it's it's just almost one-to-one with when oil prices are up like what do you guys want me to say like that's what it is you know yeah um and uh I, I guess I, I'm not sure how, how much I really need want to dwell on it or like, but, you know, I've been wanting to have someone on and you seem someone who's well versed in some of these subjects enough to have these discussions. Like I've wanted to have someone on since Russia really accelerated its invasion of Ukraine. They've really been fighting there since 2014. Mm-hmm. Um, like, how much damage do you think has really been done to Russia's tech industry by just the let's call it the fallout of the recent invasion like where do you think it's going to be in 20 years because and and where was it before that you know i think that like russia was passed like a really interesting but flawed legacy from like the soviet union i mean Mm -hmm. i did a video about the soviet computer and i was like that, that left me pretty impressed with like what the soviets were able to achieve without like real connection with the west Mm -hmm. The fact, but they've but were frankly, they able to achieve. I've never really known, like honestly, I, I have no clue because I mean they went to outer space, so they had to have computers. But like, what computers did they really have? 
they were able to build very good supercomputers. I think at the time of Stalin's death, they were the third leading supercomputer power. Okay. So they were really good at building like really fancy, like powerful supercomputers. I think what they failed to do, and China to some smaller extent in those same, same times, was to disseminate what they've learned and to turn a supercomputer into something that every in every other part of their industry can use. Right. right. And like, you didn't have that private innovation trying to make a Nintendo someone could game with at home or something. Exactly. You know? Yeah. And that's the sort of thing that I think the Soviets missed out on. And then like then they really screwed themselves when they they essentially they they had this really big computer modernization effort, I would say in the 70s or 80s or something like that. Mm-hmm. And they rather than building their own computer, they just copied an IBM 360. Mm-hmm. And they never ha- had access to IBM 360, so it was really impressive they managed to do it. But like, they created a, a whole ecosystem. They switched their whole standard of computing to a Western standard. And you can't steal your way to a kind of a, a thriving industry. So what the Soviets left for the Russians was like a bunch of really old equipment that was... Uh, 10, 15 years behind the leading edge, which got worse over time because as mm-hmm. the leading edge kept marching on. Slowly right, because they just reverse engineer, they try to copy it, they do it. Okay, well, semiconductors have been evolving very fast in the West. By the time you've successfully copied it, the West already has things five times faster or something, right? And it gets harder to kind of copy it as these things got more complicated. Like, mm-hmm. you're not, you're just seeing the end product, right? Like, and then, you can't exactly kind of break that stuff open and kind of say, oh, we need to do this now. Um, so it's, it's, it's a tough legacy. I think, you know, the Soviets, what the Soviets left Russia was like, they, they left them this massive oil infrastructure and that's what they ended up doing. And now mm-hmm. they're, they have some tech, you know, software benefits. I think anything that's driven by the defense industry, like the military defense industry seems to be rather competent, I would feel. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think like anything outside of that is imported. So some of the things with, with like that, that Soviet legacy for Russia, I think was, it was terrible for their Russian, for their tech, tech industry. And like, they never had that opportunity to manufacture and they never had that opportunity to get good at electronics manufacturing. And without that sort of kind of, you know, broad ec- economic specialization, I wouldn't like, you know, their semiconductor, you know, uh, industry never really succeeded. So I guess the question I have then is, and up until now, they've been able to import CPUs, server, you know, products from the West, the East. How much has that changed in the past half year from the sanctions and the fallout of them? And how much of a disadvantage will this be long-term? Like, is it really one? Because I hear people make the argument, it's like, like the government will just pay 50% more to import it through back channels, what they need to build a server room and the replacement parks. Is that really true? Is it really they're just going to pay 50% more for computers and it'll be, it'll be fine? Or do you think there is like a real stifling here compared to, you know, someone like even France where it's like they have their own Silicon Valley to a certain extent. For, you know, they use a lot of Intel and AMD stuff anyways, you know, like what like what's really the difference? That's a good question. I think it's... I think to the extent that like they'll have they'll still have a technology industry 
but like a technology manufacturing industry. I think it's it's important to kind of de- delineate between the two. Mm-hmm. There's like a manufacturing, there's manufacturing, and then there's like tech, right? Which is like software, internet services, stuff like that. I think the internet services will still be around. I think that stuff will still be will still be there. I think it'll still grow. I I think those second source from stuff probably from I would probably reckon China. Like mm-hmm. China's building all these fabs and they need to sell to something. So I would probably say they would buy from there. Well, that starts to get me into another subject I want to talk about though, which is Russia and how China can get involved. So you can see my dog Reese here has a schedule that's almost as busy as mine when we're at the office during a work day. And because of this, we're both always looking for an efficient lunch that we can make quickly that's also very healthy. And we've solved the problem with Vite Ramen, who's a sponsor of this piece of content. Vite Ramen is an eager American company that's crafted a protein and nutrient-dense meal that takes minutes to make without sacrificing taste. This includes their classic packages that make it easy to add protein and other ingredients of your choice while cooking or their new ramen go packages that offer a healthy microwavable option for those who truly only have a 15 minute lunch break click on the link in the description and use the offer code broken silicon to save 10 percent on a variety of different products including special bundles for moore's laws dead fans raw nudes if you want to make up your own recipe vite go packages and other food products and cooking utensils and more whatever you prefer using these offer codes helps support this channel tremendously and it gets you a good deal for a healthy, fast, and tasty, reliable sponsor of Moore's Laws Dead. Try Vite Ramen today. Samantha Haskell writes in and she says, Hey, Tom and John, big fan of your Silicon politics content, John. In recent news, we've seen China and Russia doing joint military training, with Russia seemingly struggling to equip their military with modern tech. How important is China's semiconductor industry to these nations' military capabilities? Do you see any scenario where China would open fabs in Russia or do a technology transfer to Russia to help them produce chips domestically? Many thanks. And before you answer this, I actually have a lot of links in the description for people listening or watching this episode. Um, I followed the YouTube channel Perun, and he did an interesting analysis a few days ago about China's military modernization kind of touched on the spending and long story short, it's kind of a mystery why anyone considered Russia's military to have anywhere near the capacity. Some people were comparing it to like if you, even when you adjust for differences in pay and how much farther money goes in some countries, like Russia's military spending is like way below China's (laughs) like, which is it's tiny. And when people say joint ventures, it's like, I don't think China's a charity here. <laughs> like, I wonder how much they would help Russia, whereas it's only going to be when it's 100% in China's benefit. I mean, I'm sorry, like the the Russian economy is like tiny compared to China. Like, there's a real question of, it's almost a Western mentality of Russia, China helping Russia, because like, why would China care, you know? But I, I don't know what you think about that and how much you think China might step in to fill the hole that Western computer companies were filling for Russia. I think there's probably some sort of trade going on between the two Mm -hmm. to some extent already. Um, Of course. And like, I think right now the two governments are very friendly with each other. I think they, the the wording they use between each other are very like unprecedentedly close. Like it's kind of, it's kind of strange um, considering the history, but it's like, Mm -hmm. um, 
I don't. A lot of people think they were always friends. They really weren't during the Cold War. Correct. <laughs> like, Correct. The Sino-Soviet split was one of the, the major issues. And they almost went to war. Like, they almost mm-hmm. went to war at some, I think, uh, in the oh gosh, 60s, 70s, sometime. They, they, they basically fought. Um, so, so, it's, so to see that going, one of the reasons why China turned to the West, to America, was to kind of align themselves against the Soviet Union. So it's an interesting mm-hmm. thing to look at. Uh, today going back to it um i that being said i don't think china would build a fab in russia i don't think they're going to transfer any technology to russia semiconductor wise i think um right now they're just gonna they'll be perfectly happy just selling stuff to russia in exchange for whatever they're getting right now which is i guess natural resources and that's kind of my expectation as well it's like again i think it's a very European, American, Western point of view to even come to any conclusion of like, oh, well, China will just step in and fill the hole that the West's leaving for. It's like, yeah, but that's from the mentality that you're the center of the universe. Right, right. (laughs) The West is not the center of the universe. Everyone has their own motivations. Of course, China is happy to like build their own. I forgot the name of the companies that make them their own x86 servers and sell them to to Russia. But it's not going to be like, hey, we're going to give you a great deal because we're friends it's like no we'll sell them to you you're gonna probably pay us extra now though because we know you're we're the only country you can buy from at this point yeah and obviously it's gonna like other western countries will like china interacts with the west less so now but like they do so if some if the west sees that china is starting to really supply that sort of thing to russia there's gonna be i don't know there's gonna be a flat like it's gonna be uh, drawbacks to that to to that approach and i think i mean to some extent it's kind of part of that's part of the reason why china hasn't done more yet as of right now and um, Mm -hmm. and to add to that of course like you know a lot of these pipelines and a lot of these infrastructures built to sell oil and gas to europe rather than china that all the other stuff doesn't get built russia's infrastructure they can't just like switch a valve and send it all to china there's like one pipeline right to china and it's not nearly as good as the pipelines going to europe yeah right i mean soviet union has been selling oil to europe for 50 60 years i mean so like they that's something i learned by the way like a month ago i was like wait during the cold war Germany was still just in France. They're just all just getting their gas from Russia. Like, exactly. oh my God, like that. I, I didn't even like, cause they don't, they don't teach. I, they didn't teach me that, you know, that was a fact yeah. that was left out of the history book I had in school, which to me seems like a really important fact when we talk about this, like American Reagan-esque thought of like, oh, this life and death struggle between two superpowers. It's like, dude, half of our allies were buying all their energy from Russia the whole time. Anyways, like it was really some of them didn't feel that threatened or something. <laughs> Yeah, I'm doing a video about the Soviet oil industry right now, and it's like, it's very interesting. It's very interesting, the interplay and the politics. They used, even back then, the Soviets were using oil and gas prices to kind of manipulate different cult, different countries' politics. Like, they, they forced the whole the whole cabinet of uh, Finland to resign because of it. Like, it's mm-hmm. very interesting. They played that card very well. Moving forward here, let me let me start pivoting into this. That like, how, how do you think China sees the current situation with Russia and Ukraine and the West? Like, what do you think? I, I think that we we know that. We, I mean, we saw Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin talking to each other right before the end. Like, I'm sure they were warned, but like, how do you think 
does China see, do you think China sees how big this war was as a surprise? Do you think they're happy, unhappy? Like, how do you think they kind of see this whole situation right now? I wouldn't know. I mean, I don't know anything more than what you think. I, I live in Taiwan. If I if I lived right. in China, I would be able to tell you. But um, I would, I would, and right right now, China is not really talking to anyone. Um, I would mm-hmm. say, like, their relations are are somewhat. What from what I've read is like that the Russia didn't really tell China what was going on. They said something was going to happen, but not to this extent. And I think, like you know, China sees kind of like the kind of sees that more like a a hassle to them because they got they got big fish to fry too Mm -hmm. and they don't really want to and this is that like i said that's just my conjecture like my feeling is that they don't really want to get involved in this and like they're that's been my suspicion the whole time but it's funny how on some western media it's portrayed like china knew ahead of time and they were prepared to help them to a certain extent but it's like once this all happened, started going on in Ukraine, we didn't see this like backing of Russia, really. China really hasn't. Mm-hmm. Like, all they've done is what helps them. And there's even been examples where they've kind of been a little bit of a thorn to Russia, too, where they like, I forgot what it was, but like, they like did limit some trading of some companies with Russia. Yeah. It, it, it's not like they've been backing them. So I don't see how that happens. And there isn't a certain amount here where China's like, Oh, great. So now they're just going to frame Taiwan in the same way as Ukraine. Thanks, Russia. Right, right. I think it's I think a lot of people have made a point as like there's a big difference between the China Taiwan situation, the Russia Ukraine situation. Um, And like, but with regard, like, I don't necessarily see one leads to the other. And I think also with like, you know, despite kind of their words, I would say, you know, maybe Russia and Chinese relations aren't necessarily as close as we may think. But, so, you know, it is you, what it is. You, you say that it's not the same. And of course, it's not the same situation. China, Taiwan, Russia, Ukraine. But I'm going to be honest. When I've heard like a Chinese ambassador say that, right? Like, you know, Ukraine is not Taiwan. It's not the same situation. I can't help. And tell me if I've been wrong to do this. I would like laugh sometimes and go, it's pretty similar. Actually, you have people who historically from a similar group that are now two places. One of them, smaller. One of them wants to own the other region. How is this not different? You know what I mean? Like, is it's? I actually find the Taiwan-China situation very similar to the Ukraine-Russia situation. Or do you think it's wrong for me to think that? I think you can draw... There's complications that... I think it's tough to use this sort of... And this is someone who used to do a history YouTube channel. So, like, I... It's hard to draw complication mm-hmm. to draw similarities between two historical situations in that sort of to to and use those to draw a another conclusion. I think one of the big concerns be, the big differences between the Taiwan China situation and the Ukraine Russia situation is that there's 100 miles of ocean between uh Taiwan and mm. China. And I think like it's and also the situation is that um I mean, my personal feeling is that, like, the circumstances are different. And Taiwan ha- Taiwan and China are... The president in Taiwan has not crossed a line that China deems unacceptable. Mm-hmm. And that 100 miles of ocean ha- is 
imposes a lot of difficulty that was not possible with Russia and Ukraine necessarily. Russia and Ukraine have this massive military or have this massive open land border. Mm-hmm. And you need a certain military capacity to to make that sort of invasion possible. Things can also change in Taiwan that we don't know. Like um, there's an election coming up next, in two years. And I think it's not guaranteed that the party that's right now in power is going to win. And mm-hmm. relations basically were pretty sat, were pretty warm until that party went into power. So things can always change. Mm-hmm. I yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just, it's just tough for me to make that sort of, and also tough for me to speculate on it because I live here. So it's like I, I personally am biased to a certain view. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I, and I, I obviously there's huge differences in geography there's also differences in why just from a complete chessboard real politic reason one country like i'd say it's more of a cultural tie to try to unify taiwan and china whereas with russia and ukraine and again right i'm just one person my opinion here i think there's just a lot more of a selfish want for resources <laughs> in ukraine more so like natural resources gas food like in Ukraine for Russia than it is more of a drive to culturally want to unify for China. I'm just saying the thing I find similar is, well, these are historically sometimes unified groups of people in the past where one of them is trying to, it says they want to take the other one and that they're really the same group. That's what I'm saying is similar between Russia and Ukraine, but obviously geo geographically there's vast differences in what something would look like between taiwan and china and russia and ukraine and have you watched like have you watched putin like putin when he justified the invasion of russia uh, russia's invasion of ukraine he he basically evoked those same sort of things Mm -hmm. that china and taiwan china and taiwan the the taiwan conflict evokes too like putin seems to believe that ukraine is part of russia in some extent like some Mm -hmm. sort of one russia policy and I don't know if that's necessarily adopted by the rest of his people, but I know it's very, I know one China is very much adopted on the mainland. Like they, they live and breathe that stuff. Yeah, I guess, uh, that's the comparison I was trying to make though, is the arguments being made are the same, but I guess what you're saying is it's like, well, no, but quite literally Chinese people went to Taiwan, <laughs> like, and Putin's just kind of trying to make it sound the same, right? And he just is retconning. There's a lot more retconning going on with the Putin argument. Basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is. There is. Um, all right. PC Dog writes in and he says, Hello, Tom and John. The recent visit to Taiwan by the U.S. Speaker of the House provoked China to conduct, and he puts this in quote, military exercises around the island of Taiwan. Were these exercises posturing on the part of China for a diplomatic gain only? Or is this possibly a true prelude to military action? Would China risk war over a perceived violation of the one China policy? And the things I've looked at and read too about this is this is very like you touched on very different than Russia invading Ukraine. It would be a lot harder to invade Taiwan. I mean, I think people might miss this too. Taiwan isn't a small island. It's not one island either. It has island chains loaded with anti-air defenses and anti-ship defenses in front of the main island of Taiwan as well. It would not be a cakewalk to invade Taiwan. Do you think China's actually considering doing this in the next year, or is this a, you know, posturing 
to make it clear, we really do not like it when you guys do this. Like, what what is your feeling on that? Again, I have to preface this that like I I have a bias, right? And I I per, I'm sure. I'm not actually like I'm I'm half from the mainland, so I think it's I'm 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 very sympathetic to the Chinese perspective. Um, mm-hmm. My personal feeling is that like you exercise for what you want to do, and I think they're not really exercising for an invasion. And I think they recognize that invasion is would be a step. They've not crossed the line. I think Deng Xiaoping set out three lines for an invasion, and those have not been crossed, mm. right? And what are so, those three lines? I, I don't know. Uh, nuclear weapons, military troops stationed in in Taiwan, and I don't remember the third. Um, okay, but nuclear weapons is a automatic, automatic triggers an automatic invasion. <laughs> they will go don't, no matter what. <laughs> don't tur- turn Taiwan into a Cuban missile crisis. Number one, number two, don't place your foreign armies there. And then there was a third one. Okay, yeah. I see. Yeah, we're not even close to that. No, yeah, not close to that. So I think like I think what they're exercising for is a blockade. So I think that's probably what's going to happen to some extent. And then you can game out what will happen afterwards in a blockade situation. And then if you think about that sort of thing, then it's like, you know, I think part of the reason why the exercises happen is that also it's like you're posh, you're, 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 you're not posturing, you're demonstrating to your, to the domestic, to a domestic population who you trained up to be extremely nationalist mm-hmm. that you are capable of doing something like this. Um, so I think it's like, Generally, the Chinese population are the mainland Chinese are very sympathetic. They 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 don't want war, but they're also very much against this independence thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they're they, but they also want to be shown that they they want the government has to strike that sort of balance. And it was a tough time for for I think Xi Jinping. I think he's essentially. This is, this is also again my personal my personal feeling. I, I think he's running an election right now. I mean, he's mm-hmm. got a there's an upcoming there's an upcoming like meeting where he has to where essentially he's going to get you know his third term or whatever, and he needs he's been he he wants to show that he can deserve that. Well, and that was something I actually skipped over. That now I can throw in here was like, how do you see the current? Xi Jinping's current status and power, though, because there, there's no, it's impossible to not read this to a certain extent of him showing, no, really, give me a third term, make me president for life. I'm strong enough to lead us forward. But this is at a time when there is a lot of issues, like there's a 2008, from my understanding, level financial crisis that could be developing right now in China at the same time as some protests over lockdowns like it, it's could could they really afford a war right now as compared to five years ago or five years in the future like wouldn't that be one of the worst times for that for the chinese economy i mean it's not it there's like big fish to fry outside of a war with the west i uh i would say that like you know it's hard to say what to, to, to think about what's going on in the economy right now i think if you're looking I at feel like you can never is, know for sure, too, right? Yeah. Because China is such a lockdown country. So I always feel like we're just a little bit guessing how good or bad it is at any given yeah. city there. Like, we don't know what's going on. And there's a billion people, 1.4 billion people. That's Europe and Russia, and that's all these other people combined, right? So, like, mm-hmm. it's hard to kind of determine what's going on. I tend to downplay kind of what the Western kind of calls out certain events. 
but there are some data points we can look at to say like, okay, there is, they look like they are having some trouble down there, but is it, I don't, I wouldn't go as far to say it's like a 2008 sort of crisis. Um, I would say seems like it looks like a relatively mild recession and like they're having some, having some difficulty. It might be kind of like a 2008 light, I would say, where you end up with a situation where a very high youth unemployment and, you know, interest rates stay low and economies, like a lot of businesses just try to struggle to get back. I mean, so I, I, and I went, I, I graduated in 2008. I, I don't think anyone was like, you know, it wasn't like great depression or anything. So mm-hmm. I, my personal thing is like the economy is not that bad. Um, it's probably, but it's probably, you know, some people will struggle. Uh, and that'll be, I don't think, I don't think that, been, and I don't think the economy has a play in whether or not it leads to war. Um, mm. Like, if you think about like it. Even if, if it makes kind of, it worse or not, right? Like, yeah. they're going to do this no matter what. If you kind of flip it on its side, right? Isn't a war the best way to unify people against one cause? So, And that's something Jason Field suggested as well, who was uh, on the podcast Angry Planet. He was a... He was a, I think it was a lead editor at Reuters, like, and he said, you know, whenever this happens, and this was actually before all of the recent events with like Pelosi visiting Taiwan, he says, but, but still we were talking about like all this posturing that seems like a bad time to do all this posturing, but he's like, yeah, it's also the best way to unify your people behind one message and distract them from the issues they're dealing with as well. I think it works for a certain extent. Yeah. Works for a certain extent. I mean, look at rock in the U.S. I mean. Mm-hmm. That didn't work for very long. Um, well, yeah, let's not. <laughs> <laughs> um, but here's the thing, though. You say you think they're practicing, if anything, for a blockade to prove that they they are the final say on what happens with Taiwan. That's why they would do a blockade to say, hey, guys, we weren't kidding. We decide, you know. But the U.S. has said that if a block that a isn't a blockade a red line for the United States military and that like like wouldn't a blockade de facto be starting a war a, at least a limited engagement with the west if they try that cuz i don't think uh, at least from what i've heard some people say is i think i think the united states government is trying to make it sound like you can't do that right like don't you think that could itself lead to a war we're talking about here Maybe not an invasion of Taiwan, right? But, a, but like a war with the West over Taiwan, if you will. I've spoken to a lot of people um, in the mm-hmm. States and I have myself an American. So like, I, this is just my personal feel. I don't know anything about the government or anything like that. I don't know what the government will do. I know the government has done things that it's not popular. Um, the, US, the US government. Um, I don't think the Americans are coming. So I don't think mm. America will get involved. So you have to calibrate in thinking of that way. Um, so you but, personally think if a blockade happened, like, and again, it wouldn't just be the United States because it's, it's funny. I sent the uh, script that we're discussing today to someone that I know who works in the United States government and he says, at least talking to some people, you know, like classified clearances, these are the, you know, he, I can't say where he works, but it's, it's a place that where they talk about this stuff, you know, and, and some other think tanky people. And it's like, a lot of them think we would, <laughs> at least in the government. So that's what's so interesting is it becomes this game of chicken, though. Like, 
There are a lot of people that I talk to that think we absolutely would go to war yeah. if they did that. Or there, there would be some response. And I don't think it would just be the U.S. necessarily. I think it would be best if it was just the U.S. because we don't want this to turn into some conflict with a dozen countries involved. But I, I don't know. I, 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 you, 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 I guess I'm just kind of throwing that out there that I, I haven't heard everyone say that, though. You really, you, you believe a blockade happens. Hey, no more seven nanometer PS5s, no more iPhones or something that they would just, the U.S. would just say, oh, well, they wouldn't get involved. Yeah, I hear a lot of Americans say, I'm not going to send my, ma- my, my son or daughter to, to fight China. I think it's, uh, I, I don't know. And then I also, like, I don't want to say the blockade is like China saying that they can do it. They're practicing for a situation. They know they can't do an invasion. Mm-hmm. Like, they, they, like. So it's interesting, but at the same time, you think invasion completely off the table. There's no way that's happening. It'd be a disaster. Not in the next five years. Like, even with the situation as this is right now, like, an invasion across 100 miles of the Taiwan Strait would be the greatest, the biggest amphibian attack of all time. It would be bigger than D-Day. And like, it's... I, I've seen some analysis that say you would want at minimum an invasion force of like 600,000, if not a million people to even have a chance yeah. of it working. Yeah. And it would be, and a lot of them will drown. So it's like, it's a blockade makes more sense. So like even a military as big as any sort of like what the PLA is, like, I don't think they can, they can kind of explain that away. Um, mm-hmm. So I think they're going to, they're going to go for a blockade. That's the way I see it. Um, but then, I, like I said, also, I also personally don't think, personally, personally, I know people are going to get at me this. Personally, I feel Americans are coming. But let's kind of sidestep that then and get to one of the main points I want to talk about here. Because I just, it's something I talked about with Jason Fields um, on a previous Broken Silicon. It's something I've been kind of dancing around talking to some other guests as well. All right. But let's say there is some war over Taiwan. I think I agree it would probably be at most a limited engagement between Western countries, which would be probably, if we're being honest, the U.S. and maybe South Korea, Australia and such against China. Although, again, I, I've been yeah, in Japan. And I've been thinking about this recently. Like, you'd probably want to keep it as limited as possible, though, because if too many countries get involved, the West has to know North Korea might get involved. And that's not fun. So you'd want to keep it with any war as limited as you can. If this does, Let's just say this does happen. There's sanctions thrown back and forth across China and its allies in the West. And then at the same time, Taiwan's just kind of knocked off the board for five years. No one's getting anything out of there. We're not getting, like, which countries do you think would feel the most pain? Because I've asked people today, too. I've heard some different responses to this. Like, do you think it would just be everyone just gets a bunch of bloody noses and it would just suck for all parties? Or do you think short-term, mid-term, long-term, some countries would feel it the worst? Hard to say. I know it's a big question, you know, I know. Yeah, hard to say. I think it's like, I think like right now, you're still at this point where China still produces a lot of things that people need, uh, still manufactures mm. and exports a lot of people things. That's starting to change to some extent, but that's still, I mean, a lot of very important stuff is made there. I think you're going to see a situation where a lot of assembly countries uh, get hit hard. A lot of countries in the, you know, of course, the USA, all the Western countries who get their imports from from China will get it. Will get will get hit pretty hard. Um, but it's, I don't necessarily think that's like the end of the world or anything. Like I, I think mm-hmm. there's going to be enough capacity out there, enough manufacturing ability out there to sort of 
to, to, to meet people's like regular needs. Um, I think if you look, like, I think, I think countries can survive on surprisingly little if you think about it. Like, mm-hmm. like there, as long as there's, there's food on the table and a lot, I think America sources a lot of its food domestically. So I think it'll be fine. They'll be fine. That, see, that's the interesting thing is me and Jason talked about this. Like, if we're being honest, I think short term, what you're going to see is, well, there's going to be like six months to a year or to two years, I would say, actually, where all of the cutting edge stuff, it quadruples in price because what's on the shelves is what's left. Yeah. <laughs> and it would be. And then I think in two years, again, I use it as an example because it's a popular gaming device but like the PS5. You'd see the Freedom Edition. So like Sony would just go to Intel or Global Foundries and say, this is the 12 nanometer or the Intel 7 version of the PS5. Hey, it's 300 watts instead of 200 watts. and It costs $600 instead of $500. It's, it's just a worse one, but it can play the same games. But that would yeah. be two years later. And I think five years after that, things would start to get back on track with Western countries resourcing everything. But I think it would be like a year of nothing. Two years, you get crappier versions of what we have now. And then in five years, we'd maybe start to climb our way out of the hole. Do you think it'd be any better or worse in China, though? Right? Because you do have Intel, Global Foundries. They're all of these cutting-edge nodes. Samsung, right? Although Samsung has a lot of their foundries, actually, in China. Um, Like, do you think... I think we can agree what I just described is pretty much what would happen for everyone short-term. But, like, long-term, do you think... You know, I, I look at some of these domestic x86 chinese manufacturers that are saying oh we're gonna have zen 3 ipc in two years oh and it can only hit three gigahertz so really what you're saying is you have zen 2 performance five years after zen 2 Mm -hmm. like do you think long term there would be a drag on the domestic chinese computer industry because it's kind of like what you described like a lot of it you know some of the most advanced x86 products in china right now are derived from uh, an american company amd so, like, do you think they would catch up quickly, or do you think they would start falling pretty far behind, you know, per socket and server efficiency in cyberspace because of that loss of a connection with the West? I think it will. I don't think they've been able to succeed in building out a completely domestic semiconductor supply chain yet. Mm-hmm. A lot of the equipment from leading edge fabs in China come from the West. Um, I think I talked about the SMIC thing, right? Like a mm-hmm. lot of them is, it's like ASML equipment. So, and Nikon, I suppose. And that comes out of the Netherlands, right? ASML. Netherlands, correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Netherlands. Um, so it's like, so a lot of that comes out of the, out of like that area. And I think um, there for, there you'll have, you'll have the same sort of like pain because the whole semiconductor global ecosystem is interconnected. So you have a situation where if one or any of those nodes fall apart, then you're going to have some fab somewhere saying like, well, we can't build any of this because we're missing this chemical from Japan Mm -hmm. or this chemical from like debt from, from Netherlands or something. And the whole thing can't move forward. So we're all going to wait. Right. Or we're all going to try to build like something else to kind of get around it. So you're going to have these, you're going to have these rolling kind of rolling blackouts for, for a very long time. And it's a, and then if you want to keep talking about like the Taiwan taken offline scenario, that's like, you know, a substantial, significant portion of capacity out there that's just gone, right? Right. So we had a chip shortage that lasted for years with like a 20%, 20, 30, 25% increase in demand, right? <laughs> if, 
and like 10, 5% chunks in demand cause roll cause shortages for, for weeks. So what happens when you take 30 to 40% off of supply just offline for you for months, for months. And it's the most advanced supply too. Correct. And it's like the one that's the best, right? That most scale and the one that kind of everything north of like 12 nanometer, right? Like that's like the most scale, the most capacity, the most output, like that's all gone. And then it's like, well, I, I mean, you're going to have a, you're going to hear about it and it's going to last for a while in both mm-hmm. sides of the street, I would say. Because these things come, these things escalate and they avalanche to other places, right? And it feel I feel like to start to try to get into a dichotomy of how it would affect, as you would say, both sides of the strait differently. Um, in the in the west, if you will, I think what you'd have is the biggest issue. Would everyone would have the same issue right away? We were buying stuff from this place; it's gone, <laughs> right? And everyone would scramble to make it domestically then. And then once you get online, I, I think then in the midterm, though, the West's biggest problem, and I, I was talking to one of my contacts about this today, and I don't think enough people talk about this, is like you look at the CHIPS Act in the United States, and it's like, oh, we're going to fund Micron and Intel and TSMC domestically. It's going to be great. That's actually like a small part of the issue. PCBs, heat sinks, capacitors, the assembly, all in mainland China. So I think actually that's a major advantage China would have in the midterm is they have the capacity if they could get, maybe it's worse versions, you know, maybe it's the people's PS5 instead of the freedom one is what you called in the West, but they have all of the assembly lines there and the West would have a lot of lagging and just making the heat sink companies heat sinks for a reasonable price that I think not enough people, and I'm sure they don't think about this in the American government right now are taking into account like, Something needs to be done about all of these suppliers that make like a graphics card or laptop that isn't just, you know, the cool five nanometer die or something. Yeah, I think it's like, I think they, they're probably looking at it because they see a capacitor, PCB, heat sink. It's essential, but it's also a commodity. So like mm-hmm. what they're probably guessing is like, you know, some of that moves out of China and eventually will move out of China at some point if enough pressure is applied. I think it'll take time. I think... uh you know, China had to get to it somehow. Everything that can be done can be undone. So I would feel if you have situations where you start building pockets of ecosystem, tech ecosystems outside of China, like in Vietnam or India, mm-hmm. maybe like I think India is starting to get some getting some capacity there. But that's, that's interesting. And I think that like it's not ready yet, obviously, but it takes time. It takes time. And that's the thing. One of my contacts I talked to today said he's like, well, yeah. If it happened, they would start making heat sinks in other countries, for example. But it hasn't happened. And if the point of the CHIPS Act is to protect us from the fallout of a war like this, well, make the heat sink companies start doing it now. And no one is. He's like, he's like, because his analysis in the government, he's like, we're finding like no one's doing anything about that stuff. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah. It's a major issue. Isn't the, I feel the CHIPS Act is, the posturing of that is to help, to help get that thing passed. I love the whole Chips Act. My feeling on the Chips Act, and I haven't read it, the whole 1,000 pages, but it's like, sure. it looks like they're, they just want to build a couple more fabs in the States. But the, yeah, they, and they're going to pay for that. And they're going to And they're that. selling it as matching China, but it's like, yeah, but the fabs aren't the only issue. It's like, right, right, right the right, problem, right. you know? <laughs> right. I think their thing is just like, they want to build a couple more fabs in the States and 
and like that's fine they can they can do that but like they're ignoring that other stuff i suppose right now it's i don't want to say it's a boondoggle because it's gonna get you're get you're getting you're getting the benefits you're getting some great fabs in the states um yeah there's very little downside either way no matter how you sell it right right but like yeah you're you're missing all these essential components that really mean like that really translate down to like the end user or stuff like that like um so i think that's that that will suck that will suck but they'll build it somewhere else so so but talking then to what would suck on the other side of the straight if you will so short midterm i think you've got that issue with like capacitors heat sinks boards assembly being in mainland china not being in the west long term though do you i think you answered it already but i just want to make sure we round it out the conversation like long term though it, it could you you do you believe the west though would figure it out build stuff on their own domestically and china would struggle much more to get like parity and x86 and server cpu performance right because a lot of it is and tell me if i'm wrong to say this is copying what a lot of western companies are doing and they only gets you so far right yeah i think i think i don't think well i think a war and any sort of blockade will not help china close the gap um i mm. think uh i think any sort of I think the, the the gap between China and the United States in terms of semiconductor capacity and capability and computer capacity computer capability is probably going to be medium term, maybe. I think it takes some time. It's going to take some time to to close, and it's going to take even longer to close. And the ways they're going about it, I would say, kind of walk back or kind of walk along the same paths of the Soviets as well. That mm-hmm. in that like it doesn't really it doesn't really it didn't really bode out well for the soviets it wasn't the reason why the soviets collapsed but it it kind of long term it could have been though right like we don't talk about if the cold war would have gone on another 10 years just how insanely behind in computer tech russia would have been correct correct yeah but it you know like it wasn't the reason why so like you know if they they kept going i think the the, the gap will continue to exist continue to exist to some extent Mm -hmm. now okay then let me ask this reader mail samantha haskell writes in and she says howdy tom and john interested to hear your thoughts on the state of the chinese semiconductor industry in your opinion how much of what china is doing right now is based on original design and engineering and how much is stolen reverse engineered etc from tsmc and others is this still as big of a factor as some make it out to be I think the first thing I want to say is that like every country in Asia stole reverse engineered and kind of just rebuilt, right? That's the whole definition of catch up, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, South Korea was basically hiring diaspora and South Kore- Koreans to come back to Korea, just build whatever they did there. And that's mm-hmm. why it can go, ha- it can happen really fast. Like that's why it's called catch up. It's you're just f- following what someone did before. I think, what China is doing right now is still catch up to some extent. And like, they're looking and they, they, you know, they're following the playbook. They're following a playbook that like every Asian development country, including Taiwan has followed for, for decades. So, mm-hmm. um, to say that it's like based on original design or something like that, is it a big factor? I don't think it's a big factor whether or not that they, they're this reverse engineer where it came from. It's working and it's working for them right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really think it matters whether or not it's original or where it came from or stuff like that. Um, 
I think the thing that what makes it more interesting is like, if you look at that process, if you look at that playbook, and if you look at what they've done, what they are capable of doing, then like what can be done to interrupt or kind of impede that. Mm -hmm. And that's, those are certain things that I think I like, you know, policymakers should consider and think about on both Mm -hmm. sides in China and the United States. Um, and the semiconductor industry in China is kind of, you know, it's, we also have to look at it from the manufacturing and a design standpoint. I think from the design standpoint, they're doing very well. There's a lot mm-hmm. of really interesting, interesting things that are happening. They're raising a lot of money. They're, they're just like the AI chip space in China. I would say AI and AI chip space in China, I say is better than what's going on in the United States. Um, they've pushed use of AI I would say to greater extent across the whole country. Mm -hmm. Um, But on the manufacturing space, I think it's still the same economic forces still apply. A lot of the equipment, a lot of the chips are made by a a small proportion of the chips are made in China by Chinese companies. So you would have TSMC has a couple fabs in China, Mm -hmm. Uh, Samsung, right? Also has fabs in China and like, a lot of those, like those take the majority of Chinese domestic capacity right now. So you're making me think about kind of a thought here. Like, I think, again, very Western way of thinking, or American, I should say, way of thinking, this thought pattern of, well, they copy all our stuff, you know. So if they were cut off, they couldn't copy stuff, they'll fall behind like the Soviets. How much of it is like a uniquely, you know, you know, Chinese problems so much as it is hey, if you cut off Japan from TSMC they'd have a lot of problems catching up too <laughs> you know like how much is it just it's a problem for everyone it's just that the fact that Taiwan's allied with so many western countries makes us view it through the lens of China copying whereas a lot of these countries are all copying from each other yeah I would say it's like a lot of these countries do copy from each other I think Taiwan's like Taiwan like they licensed it but like they their their first TSMC's first node was licensed and like it was basically a copy of what was done from somewhere else I think SMIC is probably copying from TSMC to some extent, uh, to mm-hmm. some extensive extent. And like that gave them N7, which is the seven nanometer, what they call, and it's a seven nanometer equivalent. Uh, we don't know the yield. We don't know the capacity. It doesn't seem as good, though. Like it seems like they say a bunch of stats and then the product falls quite short, though, of what the TSMC equivalents are. We'll have to see. Yeah, it could be. And then they, they don't have UV and like, but like uh, TSMC ramped up their N7 with multi-patterning without EUV and they sold, they, they made an iPhone with it. So like iPhone chip with it. Mm-hmm. So it's, we know it's possible. And if SMIC knows it's possible, then I mean, wouldn't that mean they can achieve it somehow? We'll see. Crazy, what is it? What's this message over here? You want treats, belly rubs, walks, and to not overpay for Windows keys. Well, I can definitely handle the treats, belly rubs, and walks on my own. I can't help Reesey with getting reasonably priced Microsoft keys without CDKeyOffer.com. This piece of content is sponsored by CDKeyOffer.com, a long-term sponsor of Moore's Laws Dead and its community for any time someone in my community needs reasonably priced Office or Microsoft operating system keys without paying excessive monopolistic pricing. 
But that's not all they offer either. They also have great deals on PlayStation, Steam, Origin, and Uplay keys, and physical products like gaming chairs and keyboards and mice as well. They are always running sales, but make sure you use the best code possible provided for Moore's Laws Dead fans for the biggest discount. Use the links in the description or on screen and then the code BROKENSILICON to get 25% off Windows codes or die shrink for 3% off everything else on the website. Being on these links really does help the channel a lot and using the offer codes helps it even more. It keeps CD Key Offer as a reliable sponsor for this community and for you to use again in the future as they keep sponsoring us. Go to cdkeyoffer.com today. So I guess kind of to close out this part of the discussion here, um, Melodic Warrior writes in, he says, welcome to the show, John. My question is in regards to the recent changes in China's semiconductor industry. With China's CCP cracking down on the leadership of most domestic foundries, the never-ending dumping of cash into endless government-based projects and the China Plus One policy, a lot of foreign companies have taken off due to economic changes in China. Do you foresee China falling further behind in the semiconductor growth and watching it expand in other areas of the world because of this flight. To me, it seems like from a point of view that things are changing rapidly there. I'd love to have your educated input. Thanks in advance of your answer. And, and I think I just kind of want to phrase this um, in, in this lens as well. Like, so how much of like any blockade, you know, China does, no one wants a war, including China. And China's acutely aware it'd be very, very, very bad for them if this became a, a hot war over Taiwan. Like how much, like, but how much of this do you think they feel a pressure to do something because there does seem to be this Western move to leave China to a certain extent right now? How much of that isn't happening too? Like, is that overblown? How much that's happening is another question to throw in there. And like, how much of it is, yeah, they might blockade it, but they don't, they're not going to want to do anything that causes a war. And I think they're, how much of it do you think they really would just avoid it at all costs? you know, versus nationalistic. No, like we, we got to do this. We said, we're going to do it. It's our right to do it. You know, that type of thing. There is a line. Yeah. There is a line where they have to do it. Like there's, okay. Yeah. There is, they, they, there is no, there is no such thing as like an empty line, but like they're going to try to avoid it and they're going to try and make the optics look like it's the best for them. Um, I would say a blockade would be, uh, yeah, a blockade would be devastating. I don't have enough words to kind of say, like we've just tried to kind of map out the scenarios and it's like mm -hmm. two minutes of thought. And it's like, but the, but the reality of it's like, it's, it's so difficult to put into words how, what, what sort of devastation it would have across the entire American and world economy. Yeah. It'd be hard. It'd be hard. So if it did happen though, Falto writes in and he says, would people, who are, where would people move to first? Basically Intel, samsung global foundries like because this is something to start talking about now transitioning and away from some of the geopolitical stuff a little bit but it's still touching on it at first with intel wouldn't intel be like the first place most western companies would move to like to try to make their products on is their fabs in the west i think uh i think your guy daniel daniel nanny talked about this it's like mm -hmm. at this point like if it's up to like I would say to twenty eight or whatever thirty two nanometers, like a trailing edge, yeah, sure. But when you go to a twelve nanometer, seven, whatever, two, three, like at this point, the line, the production line, the process node is made for the product essentially, and it's you can't easily move that over. Like if you kind of think about it, like the processes then 
trade-offs that TSMC made for Intel or for, for you know, the the for Apple for all these other companies. They basically they did it for them, right? And TSMC accordingly went to ASML, went to all their suppliers. They went to Japan, like Topan or whatever for their photo masks. And they said, we want this specifically this way. So to think that you can just, it's not, it's not like an easy switchover. And it's not like a switchover mm-hmm. that you can do that in the midst of, an, of like a war scenario or a blockade scenario or even just an earthquake scenario, right? That's like, that's not easy to done easily done like i would say and i don't even think intel has the capacity right like intel of course makes yeah how many chips like and and compare that to tsmc which has 18 fabs of which i would say 14 of them are in taiwan and we have eight of them are gigafabs which do a hundred thousand wafers a month mm-hmm. like there's a million there's, it's, it's you can't replace that i don't think intel I don't think global for sure. And Samsung to some extent, but a lot of that's memory. So like, so in terms of logic capacity, I don't think there's enough to, to, to replace that. Right. You're saying it's interesting though, because you're starting to make me think about like, yeah, on paper, they could like make a version of it on Intel seven node or soon their Intel four node or whatever, like if they wanted to, but Intel, yeah, I know they made like some iPhones before or something like th- they made a few things for other people before in like limited projects, but like they they typically make their own stuff. And like they <laughs> like, could you imagine like the amount of bugs we're seeing in like Sapphire Rapids right now causing delays? What do you think is going to happen when like they try to make an Xbox Series X Yeah, on Intel's node? Like there's a chance it could be delayed two years even to make a worse product because of they're just they're not. They're not TSMC. They're not used to taking in outside customers. It's usually their own stuff. And how many people would be screaming at Intel, no, 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 give us capacity. Yeah. Like there could just be delay after delay after delay just to try to transfer the stuff to that node, let alone how well it would work. Yeah. And I think it's uh, they also have to build the the build the capacity now. It's not here right now, right? Mm-hmm. Like a lot of it's not they haven't even started it, or uh, maybe they have started. I'm I'm not in Ohio or anything. But like like they they like it's not running. And like, they're not a service organization and they're, they need to learn how to do that. And I've learned, I've listened to your channel, your channel a lot. And you, one thing I've always heard is like, there's culture problems there. So Mm -hmm. I, I can't imagine what those culture problems would clash with like being a service organization like TSMC, which they hire, they would hire, they, they've done things for customers that I don't think American companies would typically do. And you see, this is interesting because I didn't, I don't think, put any of those reader mails that touched on this in this script here. But I saw some of them that were submitted, and I've had them ask this on Broken Silicon episodes before. People who listen to the podcast have submitted these. It's like, if there was, if it, again, it doesn't need to be a war, an earthquake, something knocks TSMC offline. Is that a massive benefit to Intel? Or is it just bad for other people? Because there's some people that suggest or wonder, I guess, oh, but like, would this, would they become the winner? Because now everyone has to make their stuff there. It sounds like you're not so sure they would be a winner, like that it would really benefit them at all. Or do you think it would midterm, long term, or what? I mean, sure, I think they'll benefit. But if you think about it, right, TSMC missed three nanometer for the the latest iPhone, for the iPhone 14. They didn't leave. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Like they're, they're locked in. I mean, they're, they're still, I used to think I took, I put a video a while ago saying that like, you know, TSMC always has to ramp up a new node for, for Apple. And they didn't this year and like for, for the iPhone and they didn't. And it's Apple still with them. I think there's maybe, of course there's some sort of penalty, but I think they're stickier than, I think TSMC is a lot stickier than, than people expect. And it's, I don't know if those are technical. I don't know if those are cultural, but I know that it's going to be difficult for Intel to take some of that. And do you think because Samsung and global foundries are maybe more used to making designs for outside vendors that people would actually flock to them first, even if Intel had a better node? Yeah, for sure. I think Samsung, you know, Samsung is really, they still have their foundry. They still have a good bunch of customers and Mm. um, they, they'll probably be the number two. Yeah, you'd probably, it's interesting because I think everyone just assumes, oh, then everyone would go to Intel and it's like, well, South Korea isn't Taiwan either. More likely AMD just tries to flood Samsung. Right, right. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, Well, okay, so let me pivot to this discussion then. I mean, where do you see Intel in the market right now? I mean, you analyze, you did a a video about NVIDIA's rise, which I want to touch on soon, but like, how do you see how do you see Intel right now? They've had a pretty rough year. I think Intel the thing was them was that they start with well, all companies like start out with like an amazing idea, right? Like Intel's mm-hmm. big idea was that the integrated chip would perform like a lot better than transistors without using proportionally more power, right? And they rode that wave deep until the 2000s, right? And I think, but the problem was that every big idea has its ending, and can they find that second big idea? I, I don't necessarily think Intel's done that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, and then that's kind of why they've done the things they've done in recent years financially, right? They financialized, they've diversified, they've become more monopolistic. Um, it's interesting. I, I think unless the big idea comes back, another big idea comes in. I think Intel will mm. simply become well IBM eyes, right? Become more like IBM, where you start evolving into more a financial entity than a technical and manufacturing entity. Mm-hmm. Um, but if they find that big idea, right? Could maybe the big idea is like we make chips for other people now, and we're going to do this really well, and we're going to we're going to bundle like TSMC. That could work, and if that becomes the big idea. Then, like, we'll see a different company. We'll see a kind of phoenix arrive from the ashes. But I don't see many companies doing that. Yeah, it's interesting you say that um, because, look, we're going to have to wait and see. But right now, TSMC is number one. And I think you would say maybe Samsung's number two. But Intel's seven process node is not bad. And it's competing kind of with, like, TSMC almost already. Like if, look, I'll believe it. I don't want to say I'll believe it when I see it because it sounds such like a negative way to put it. But Intel says they're going to get to four and then four at the beginning of next year and then Intel three at the end of next year. Okay, Intel, we'll see. You said you said you were going to get to a lot of nodes at a certain time. Yeah. But if they did do that, even if Intel three happened in 2024, I think they would at least be tied with Samsung by then. Like, it's almost like you wonder... As you keep watching Sapphire Rapids get delayed, Meteor Lake's not coming out as soon as a lot of people wanted. 
like a lot of these products getting pushed back, if they actually hit Intel three at the end of next year, would they start to out like, oh, maybe now they are just one of the most advanced they're now they're the most advanced fab, it turns out, and it's not their chip designs that's keeping them afloat. I, I wonder if that is something that could happen. I brought this up to Daniel Nanny, by the way, in a private conversation recently. He called me a crazy person. So mm-hmm. it is a crazy idea to think they would be a foundry first company than a chip design first company. They're taking the path that I think is correct. I think it's like the it's like Sam like every every past country slash company has done the is the way they've caught up is, you know, you do multiple nodes at the same time. Um, so th- they're doing it. They're doing the right path. Like they're doing the right plan. And I've heard universally, everyone there is really smart. So like, mm-hmm. I don't, I think there's like a middle situation where they hit the node in which, in which it's kind of like an SMIC situation where you see product shipping, but perhaps there's not enough volume or no big customer to anchor that to drive through enough volume and capacity so that they can actually get a good yield out of it. Um, so uh, it's debatable. I mean, I think it's possible. I definitely think it's possible. I would love it to happen. Like, it would be great. Um, uh, they're, they're, they deserve success. It would be funny, too, to, like, look back at, like, past thoughts online like when everyone was saying 10 nanometer will never come out. And if it just turned out, no, actually now Intel's more of a fab company than a design <laughs> company. Once they fixed 10 nanometer, well, they fixed it, you know. Um, it, it'd, be, it'll be interesting to see, but it, it, it also sounds like just, you know, with their tile marketing and stuff that you don't think like that's enough to really compete directly with like AMD chiplet and infinity fabric technology that you don't. And again, I know this is kind of where me and you are maybe getting outside of our boundaries of, like if you want to even call it expertise, but like it's not, you think they need, do you think they need a bigger idea than just mixing and maxing, mixing and matching tiles in a more elaborate way than AMD is with chiplets? You don't think that's enough? Like they need something else that drives them forward because I'll, I'll just jump in and say, I find it hard to believe they get their fabric tech to catch up with AMDs. In fact, I haven't put this video out yet, but some stuff I'm hearing about Battle Mage might be linked to why Meteor Lake's coming out later than. Their fabric just does not seem to be up to snuff with AMD. And I don't know if it will be anytime soon. I don't think tiles is like a big idea. I think it's a, mm-hmm. it's a cost measure, right? Um, I think AMD, if working through TSMC, is always going to, is going to benefit from kind of all the, the volume that TSMC also takes in. Mm-hmm. I think Intel, Intel's big idea needs to be one that can match up to that. So, um, yeah, I mean, like I said, this is out of my expertise, but my personal feeling would be like, I don't think it's a big, it's, I don't think it's like an idea that drives a 95 or whatever billion dollar company there are now. And you need a, you need something. I think a fab idea is, is an interesting one. Mm-hmm. Now, we've already touched on one of the reader mails that I didn't get a chance to read, but I just want to put it out there. Spamptum G Spamptum, or he also goes by Ben, the moderator who connected us to do this episode, wanted to give you a shout out and thank you for coming on. It just occurred to me his question. We've literally just answered it without bringing him up, but I just wanted to make sure I read that since he's the one who brought us together here. So thank you. Yeah, let me shift forward then. I mean, let's just start talking a little more generally. You know, before we started recording, you said that uh, you don't 
game that much anymore. You don't pay as much attention to the gaming side. But like, how do you see AMD's place in the market? You know, like we've moved on from Intel here. Zen 4 comes out this year. RDNA 3 comes out this year. And I know Zen 5 comes out beginning 2024. RDNA 3 should come out late next year, if not maybe mid-2024 by then. Like, how do you see AMD's place right now? It's it's very different than where it was 10 years ago. Hmm. Yeah, they, 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 like, the, their story is really fun. Like, it's really great to, to look at them and see how they've kind of improved for so much. I think, um, yeah, like you said, I, I don't game. I, I don't, I wouldn't, I'm not like all this super expert on this sort of stuff. I think it's interesting. What I find interesting about what AMD is right now is like AMD seems to be benefiting a lot from taking share from Intel, right? Mm-hmm. And like, there's a big space in which the two of them play. And right now, in a period where you're growing, right, where you you can still kind of compete away from Intel, there's like a lot of fat to cut off. Um, and right now, that's that's nice. It's a good time. I think the interesting thing to think about is like what happens when things start to we start to get like declining returns to that sort mm-hmm. of strategy, and then what both of those companies will do when you think about you know. Uh, like the ARM people, right? Especially in the data center, right? Uh, if you think about it, right, SoftBank buying ARM was like the best thing for AMD and Intel. It gave them like years to just kind of like breathe and kind of survive a bit because Masa, Masayoshi or whatever, he was all into like IoT, right? When they mm-hmm. should have been into like the data center. So if you go back to like another situation like ATI, NVIDIA and Intel, right? Intel was like ATI. My understanding during the like the graphics wars, cards wars, was mm-hmm. that ATI sold because they felt that Intel would eventually cut their legs off of them. Right? The oh, Intel and there would, were rumors that Intel was looking into like things with PCI Express and stuff to kneecap them, like right. so that you can't use ATI or NVIDIA. Exactly, and they knew that they weren't going to catch up to like the the lead. So that's why they sold. They didn't want to get squeezed between the three. So if looking at back that now, kind of in that data center, which I feel is the more important field, the more important market, it's kind of an interesting position for AMD because they're kind of, they're still getting share from Intel. But when you think about the ARM data center people like Graviton and all these other hyperscalers making their own chips, it's, uh, there's, there's a future in the up ahead where things might not be so easy. Yeah. That, that It's hard to say when that future will be upon AMD, though. I'd say not for a few more years, but that is an interesting thought. Like, you're kind of saying, like, look, all AMD's had to do now is beat Intel. As right. long as they beat Intel, there's, for a certain amount of time, what feels like unlimited, it's manifest destiny. It's just unlimited market share to take, like, relative to how big AMD is as a company. But at a certain point, they, there's not more to take from Intel. They're never going to probably get above 60% server. And by the way, they probably won't ever get above 40 from Intel. But even if they did, at a certain point, they've got to find somewhere to go next. Yeah. And that pool it's a good problem itself, to have, though. Yeah. It's a good problem to have. Yeah, it's a good problem to have until suddenly, you know, things change. And then the past comes faster than the future comes faster than you think. It's, it's interesting, mm-hmm. you know. Well, what's really interesting, too, is from some i've said this in some of my leaks over the past year like you're already starting to hear amd talk this way though they say oh we're not 
we, we're not concerned about Intel. Like we, we beat them. Like we're concerned about competing with Apple server chips, which we're sure they will have in two years. We're, com- you know, and other ARM competitors. Like they're already talking. That's where their Bergamo uh, cloud art version architecture of Zen 4 comes into play. Like they're already talking about these entirely other markets they're going to try to compete in that have nothing to do with Intel. So it's in- they're already talking that way internally, actually, which is what's really interesting. That's the right. Um, that's the right way to think about it. I feel the right way to think mm-hmm. about it. Now, that's AMD in relation to Intel, but I, I do want to talk about AMD in relation to Nvidia. Though you've done a video on Nvidia, you know, like what made Nvidia conquer graphics. What um, what do you think? nvidia's biggest downsides would be in the next few years what does nvidia have to look out for and and like you've already seen the script so you know that like i think nvidia is going to do fine against rdna3 although i think rdna3 may have a massive efficiency advantage and it may just be the better architecture we'll see i think blackwell versus rdna4 is where it becomes a problem kind of like zen 3 versus you know rocket lake where it's like hey amd had chiplets Intel, you're still competing, but what what are you going to do? They're going to have chiplets again and again. How are you competing with this? It can't just be monolithic forever. And Intel's still dealing with that. Like I feel like that could come to a head in a very similar situation for NVIDIA with RDNA 4 versus Blackwell. But okay, I've talked and I've just threw a bunch of things at you. Like Where do you see NVIDIA now? And do you see that coming to a head for NVIDIA possibly at that same time that I said? Or do you think they've got it together and it'll happen later or it won't happen? I think the thing that <clears throat> Nvidia's benefited from is that like they have they move so fast, right? Um, they iterate really fast. And one of the reasons that I felt that they won the graphics wars was because they kept marching. Like they they no other company could keep up with the cadence that they were releasing new product. Um, yeah. So like I think the my personal feeling was that that is tied to partly the manufacturing capacity. That's partly tied to just how they seem to be structured. Um, so, and you're saying you're talking about NVIDIA versus AMD on the graphics card side, right? Graphics cards. That's usually what I focus on. Yeah, but certainly feel free to talk about anything else they're dealing with relative to AMD or anyone else. I think NV- NVIDIA's biggest advantage is probably their software and the ecosystem of software that they have around it. Um, mm-hmm. I've always thought like they, I. I don't necessarily think AMD. I don't think AMD can probably match and maybe do some interesting things with the hardware, but I've never really seen them to have kind of like the same sort of software ecosystem that CUDA has around it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think the interesting thing is like Nvidia has is working through its great idea, right? Its great idea of parallelism and uh, and what is capable with that sort of idea, but. At some point, that idea is going to end, and we'll see. Mm. We'll see how Nvidia reacts to that then, and uh, what what Jensen will 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 do about it. Yeah. So I don't know, you know, because I, I I'll admit it. Like I sometimes forget how much what I've talked about. I put out a lot of content. <laughs> I mean, so I'm sure you haven't seen all of it, but I don't know how much you've been following. Like my coverage of like RDNA three, like. It really seems like what we're about to see with Lovelace from NVIDIA this fall versus AMD's RDNA 3 is a situation where NVIDIA is using the most cutting-edge node they can. 
pumping things to use 450 watts or more at the top end like that's a lot of energy for a graphics card like they're doing it all they're cutting edge cooling cutting edge node cutting edge architecture they're get you know they're going to market their software and be like you know you buy nvidia because of this at the same time it just seems like what amd is going to do with chiplets with memory controller dies and a centralized compute die is they're going to make the same performance while using 30 percent less energy on cheap on an overall cheaper node and maybe nvidia wins by 10 percent, or maybe it's a tie and nvidia still sells more because they have the software but like it's not a good place to be in where you need all the levers possible to beat amd and then rdna4 is coming in i hear it's a much more elaborate design than rdna3 as well potentially it depends on if they scale it back or not but you know i guess that's what i'm saying right like when does this come to a head with nvidia because they keep just doing monolithic chips. And from what I've heard, they've been experimenting with doing chiplets and trying to get that working. Hopper, ha- I-, I-, I could never verify if Hopper had a multi-chip design, actually. I know other people have said it could. But I heard they're experimenting with a couple things with um, Lovelace and Ampere. Those never went anywhere. They were definitely trying to get chiplets working with Blackwell. Sounds like that might not happen. I, I don't, I mean, like, just kind of how I framed RDNA 3 versus... Lovelace doesn't it? I, to me it sounds like they could start to get backed into a corner though hmm. with Blackwell. I don't know. Like in the same way Intel feels like they might be with chiplets, you know, themselves. And you have AMD also is like a one of the num- one of the highest you know as Daniel Nenny called it in the inner circle at TSMC as well. That's correct. Um yeah, you guys you guys are like the 95th percentile experts on AMD and Nvidia. So I'm like if I say anything you're all going to roast me really hard. My personal feeling is that like my personal feeling is that like I think the software I think if you look at back on what Nvidia's done during its graphics war years, like they they pulled out stops too and I think they they're doing a lot of the, at this sort of level you are doing basically all you can to squeeze out more performance. So I I think what at this point, what's more important is the fact that they have this very this proprietary API, proprietary ecosystem, and it seems to be very, very strong. And you know, during there were situations during when Nvidia was up against ATI, where ATI would have hardware on par or as or near par with that of Nvidia, but like in the end, the software part of it was what tripped them up. Um, I think you need to have both. You need to have both really well to to kind of un, to take to share in that sort of sort of space. Just my personal feeling. It's my personal feeling. I have to say. No, but I think AMD knows that, and it's so interesting because I've been talking about it a lot on Broken Silicon with my brother and guests that have been coming on it. If you look at the rapid software updates, driver updates. Um, release uh catalyst releases or i don't even call it catalyst anymore adrenaline i remember from amd right now they are like reducing latency boosting frame rates adding FS- fsr 2.0 a, a new denoising tech like they're at, they're they're like every two weeks there's some major software mm-hmm. release and i keep being told behind the scenes like people winking at me like yeah that's they they built it for RDNA three, but they released it early for RDNA two. Oh, so like yeah. I think you I think AMD knows that. The interesting thing is though, I just talked to a Unreal Engine five developer who might come on the podcast eventually, a new guy, uh, and he says when it comes to AMD versus Nvidia, let me just get ahead of this. We're not using AMD for 
<laughs> it doesn't have CUDA, you know? And so what's interesting is I think AMD realizes they need to nail the software. And I think they might for gaming. But it sounds like for developing for AI, they're just not. It's going to take so many years to get there. Like, I think we could see a situation, I think, where AMD is in every con- most consoles where AMD gets to like 40% gaming market share. I, I find it hard to believe they could get to 50% anytime soon. But that in the developer AI educational space, NVIDIA is still just 90%. And that's going to be harder than it was to claw away from them than it was to claw server market share from Intel, I think. Yeah, and I think you're right there. I think the, the AI space seems to be something that the AI and it, yeah, that sort of AI and metaverse space or whatever, but AI space especially, I think is something that NVIDIA has a pretty tight holdover and I think they're going to keep. I think that's the one that has a lot of potential up ahead of it. There's some really interesting products in the AI world that will be coming out in the future. All right, so kind of switching to more general wrap-up questions here. These are ones I threw at the end that were not, were not really related to our main discussion points. Mars Lazarus writes in, and he says, Hello, Tom and John. What is your opinion on semiconductor process node naming? Is the industry going to keep using nanometers or angstroms, I guess, for the foreseeable future? Is there an alternative that's more representative of a node's actual properties? I actually want to go first on this. My answer is, dude, it's always been marketing since, like, honestly, I think 65 nanometer. Like, it's marketing. It's It's been marketing for most companies since then. Not all, but most. And, like, even from what I'm hearing with RDNA 3 with AMD, like, they're saying compute units when they're not even compute units anymore, just so you can compare them to their old architecture, kind of. I, I don't think it really matters. I think it's like, what's the newest one? And then we're just going to have to pull out the books and look at what the difference is. I don't know if you have any other thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I don't think it's anything. Yeah, they're going to add, maybe they'll do angstroms or 0. 0.5 or something like that. Like, But like they don't even, the companies don't even call it nanometers anymore. They call it like, you know, Intel 4 or something like that, right? Like, And like they put like the A or something. The A stands for angstrom, I guess, but they just call it the A. I think it's all it tells you is that there's a proportional difference and it's better than the last one. And like at this point, like I said earlier, like a lot of these nodes are customized to their product and, Mm -hmm. um, and the node is, you know, it's kind of a weird sort of remixing of the IDM situation where, you know, product and manufacturing are designed together again. So Ludovico, Moriali writes and he says, Hi, Tom and John. Aside from the usual node size reductions, seven, five, three, et cetera, what could be the next breakthroughs in microchip architectures that will allow the big players to revolutionize again our lives? In other words, moving from silicon to another material, building more components in 3D stacking than just Vcash. Do you have any thoughts on that? Like, what's the next big thing besides shrinking nodes? Because we're kind of getting to the limits of it probably in the next five years. I think the the thing with the semiconductor manufacturing industry is that they're really bad at like projecting anything past five years. Um, like we, there are situations where they would think one technology would win over another one, and it never turned out that way. And then mm. there are situations where, like you know, um, they would think they want to use this particular thing, and it never worked out, and it just took forever. I think right now, the a lot of the performance. I don't think they're moving from silicon. I think silicon is always going to, it has like 60, 70 years. Like people know it. There's, mm-hmm. 
there's a hundred billion dollar industry around it. So it's, they're going to keep doing silicon things. Um, I think you're going to see gains from maybe lithography, but I think after what they have in the next couple of five years, they don't really have anything else. Um, I think you're going to think architectures. You're going to think new structures, you're gonna, uh, new systems that all kind of built together with their product in mind. Uh, they're going to do a lot of these other tricks and things that maybe you're, like the Apple M1 has done to kind of improve performance and make sure that like these um, these things will perform better for people on an everyday basis. Um, and they're going to try new structures and all that other like like gate all around and all that. I would probably say that um, nothing beats a node shrink, but you know, mm-hmm. you're going to try other things as well. Um, they're going to try a lot of other things. And I, don't, and I think like, it just means that it takes longer to, to kind of get your next node. It, and, does, and you need the economics for there to matter. Like, if it wasn't for Apple, I think you know, we wouldn't even have 3 nanometer or N3. So it's, it's do people want it? Will people want it? Because right now it seems like not a lot of people do want it. By the way, um, a contact sent me this like a week ago. Do you know what one of the first, I think, three nanometer products is going to be on TSMC because it's not Apple? Oh, really? What is it? What do you think it's going to be? Bitcoin mining ASICs, it turns out. <laughs> and it's because they can be 50, na- they can be 50 millimeters squared. Doesn't need to be a big die. Doesn't matter. They'll just put 100 of them in one mining device, <laughs> you know? So... I just think it's interesting to throw out there that actually one of the first products on almost every recent note, especially at Samsung, has been a Bitcoin mining ASIC. And those are those have t- sort of become the early pipe cleaners when you can't even make an iPhone on it yet. That's true. That's interesting because that SMIC N plus one node, the seven nanometer equivalent, that's a, a ASIC as well. Bitcoin is mm-hmm. ASIC. I want to do a video about like, what is it about Bitcoin ASICs that always make them first? Like, I, don't know, I don't know about my opinion. Um, the operation they're doing is stupidly simple. So, <laughs> like, it, they're literally just shrinking the same crap over and over with minor tweaks. So, there's probably a lot less that can go wrong in designing on a new node. And additionally, I think I, it's perfectly parallelized. So, they can just put, I, I don't, I, you know, don't quote me, but I think I've seen like a hundred different little chips in one little mining like box. And I think what happens is they'll get to a new node and they'll go, oh, we have this. 200 millimeter squared die. Oh, bad yields. Okay, make it 100. Oh, bad yields. Okay, make it 50. Like, I think I've heard of some recent ones that are like 30 millimeter squared dies. And they're just like, oh, yeah, we'll just make them as small as we need to. And then cut them all together in one mining device that gets us 10% more efficiency over our competition. That like, and I think that's always what does it, you know? Makes sense. And they literally make, they literally make money. They literally make money. Right. So the second you make it, and they're desperate. They're desperate to get to the newest node because they're like, dude, this isn't like with NVIDIA who will just use 8 nanometer instead of AMD's 7 nanometer at TSMC. If it's cheaper, it's like, no, it's it's just better if we're on the new node. Just flat out, it's better. All that matters is efficiency. So Very true. That's fun. Um, I like that. They're, they're like, yeah. I heard TSMC starting N3 next month, so it's all over the news in Taiwan. It's very excited. Well, yeah, and that's an interesting thing, too. If you look at, like, AMD's slides for Zen 5, they say Zen 5's on 4 nanometer and 3 nanometer. And I'm I'm trying to, we'll see when I get this, like, leak out there, like, talking about exactly what they're using 3 versus 4 for on this architecture. But I think people need to just prepare themselves 
with that, with NVIDIA possibly using 3 nanometer with an upcoming graphics architecture, a lot of them are designing for 4 nanometer and 3 because they, they want to use 3. And I know 3 sounds like it's having problems, but I remember 7 nanometer having like 60% yields when they first started like doing early production of Zen 2. Within the first year, they're up to like 90. And they're like, oh, oh, wow, we got it to work better than before. So it wouldn't surprise me, everyone listening, like, if three nanometer is more or less delayed six months from where they wanted it to be, but once they get it working, it's working. And like more architecture switched to it than we would have expected. Yeah. And I've heard that, or what I've read is basically it says the yield is the same as N5 or better than mm-hmm. N5. And then they have a, apparently N3E, which I guess was the real N3, is like coming up behind it and that's performing very well. So I think they're gonna they're gonna ramp up this N3 maybe for I don't know this iPad chip or whatever M2 chip they're gonna do and mm-hmm. and then they're gonna they're gonna move on to kind of the real N3 and it's gonna it probably it'll be the best in the world. Well, yeah, and that and so I think everyone needs to think about this. Like, it sounds like the real N3 is coming that should hopefully get to similar clock speeds as five and four nanometer. Right now, we have a three nanometer that's just going to be better, but might not clock as fast, but it's more efficient. Again, perfect for a Bitcoin miner. Um, But then you go, okay, so maybe they're designing Zen 5 on both of these nodes because maybe some products that have a lot of cores will just use the three nanometer version. Maybe the gaming products will be four nanometer until, you know, and I put it in quotes, the real three nanometers out, and they can just switch everything to that. Mm -hmm. There's your new generation. I think think three nanometer is probably in a, less problematic spot than a lot of people are portraying it is kind of what I'm trying to say too. I think, yes, it's not going as smoothly as five nanometer, but like once it's working, it's going to be working. I think, I think it, I think it will be in about a year. I think people, people underestimate how hard this stuff is. They're like, Oh, it's late. It's late six months. And it's like, this is, this is really hard. When the more I dive into this sort of science and behind it, the more, the harder and more, the harder it gets. And the more I'm impressed by it, I think M3 is going to be, crazy that it even exists all right well i think i want to stop there i think that's a good note to stop on in this episode unless again like this was a very free floating discussion between potential world wars and graphics cards uh (laughs) like is there any other subjects you wanted to discuss while you're here i got one as like a you as a for as a fellow youtube creator okay like, how do you deal with people who try to start drama against you? Oh, dude. And I've had to deal with that crap so many times, especially a year or two ago. I don't know, man. All I can say is, from my perspective, is the one thing I can control is that I know I'm a hard worker. And, like, I know I do my best. And, I and like, there has to be at least a portion of my success that comes from me working hard. So I think a lot of the drama too, if I'm being completely honest here, if I'm being frank, comes from people that are just mad they didn't get a video out a day before me and has nothing to do with me. It's not my problem. And they just are looking for someone else to blame. Well, I know no one's going to outwork me. So uh, I just put my head down and keep working. But um, is that is that something that's been bothering you recently? Because it happens to everyone once. Yeah, I always get drama. And uh it gets it messes with your mental. I mean, you've been doing this longer than I have, so I I I was I'm just like I don't think I have been actually, but <laughs> I was 2,000 subscribers as late as like 
2019, like mid 2019, I was like two, three, four thousand. I was just like, now it's, it's massive and it's gets to your head. Like it's. Well, you noticed they weren't attacking you and you were 2000 subscribers, right? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know, and it's like, I don't know what to say, you know, without naming names, because again, I just so. It's boring to deal with the drama like it gets boring because yeah. it becomes I won't say which YouTube channel, but there's a certain YouTube channel that it's like comically predictable. I've, I, I've, I can pick up on patterns. If I put out a video about a similar subject, even though I don't talk to this person or watch any of his stuff, he's going to say I stole something from him if I get more views than him. Uh. <laughs> and it's only when I get more views from him. And it's like the <laughs> narcissism in this channel, like the ego on these people. It couldn't possibly be they just wanted to watch this one, right? You know, and so the more I see it, the more it becomes funny and like, and it shouldn't be, but it's like the more it becomes boring. It's like, oh, here we go. Here comes the drama queen and like clockwork. There he is attacking me on Twitter. Got it. And it's just like what I could maybe tell you that might give you some solace is the last time this person did that, no one was buying his bullshit anymore. Like right. they were just like, what are you talking about? This makes no sense. This person's talking as entirely different like facts he's putting on screen compared to you. What like we don't even understand what you're attacking him for at this point. And you know, in any attack they're doing to you, they could have been using to make another video. <laughs> and instead, you'll be getting more subs while they're crying. So I'd say that. And I'd also say something my brother said, where he's like, anytime you attack someone at best case scenarios, you shoot yourself in the leg and shoot them in the leg. But most of the time, you just shoot yourself in the leg. Even if it's fair to attack them. Right. I've noticed. Like, it doesn't matter. I like that. Thank you. I appreciate it. Because it's, it's weird. It's weird being pseudonymously famous i guess but like and if you do attack back and it's not to say i haven't before but like I, the only time i've ever fought back is where i've just put out the facts like oh this is what you said i said well literally here's our entire dm history proving your line like that's the only time i've done something where i've like fought back and i did it because i had to and i had to but anytime i've gone further than that it never made me feel better <laughs> so <laughs> that's the only other advice i can say is I don't know why some people attack other people because I can only speak for myself. It doesn't make me feel better. So it's just going to make their work worse too. You just sometimes, you know, I don't know if you've seen, uh, what is it? Uh, the interview. Yeah. Which is a that. movie. They hate Great us because they ain't us, man. What can, I, what else can you say? <laughs> I use that same phrase. I use that same phrase. <laughs> more people are starting to make that phrase to me. I think more people have seen that movie than I realized. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Oh, no, absolutely. And, you know, tell everybody where they can find you. I mean, you know, plug yourself here for a little bit at least. Um, you know, I'm on the Asianometry YouTube channel. I have a newsletter. You can you can uh, read, sign up for that. If you're in Taipei, if you come out to Taipei and also yourself, Tom, if you next time you're in Taiwan, just let me know and let's go grab coffee. We'll, we'll have an open invitation to any person who happens to live there and I'll grab we'll spend an hour chat. Yeah, I mean, I don't know when that would happen. Yeah, I don't know either, too. <laughs> it's certainly out of not out of the realm of possibility. Yeah, a couple of years ago, I'd have been like, oh, yeah, probably eventually. But right now, it's like, we'll see how many pandemics and world wars happen before I can get out there. But I'll, I'll definitely take you up on that. Um, and I guess, you know, I'll just do the normal yada yada at the end here. 
Um, if you enjoyed this, make sure you subscribe to the Moore's Law is Dead YouTube channel. Uh, ring the bell button. Uh, subscribe to Broken Silicon on your podcast app of choice. Give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Support us on Patreon. You'll get early ad-free access to this episode. Ability to ask cool guests like John questions before the show. And also exclusive podcasts like Die Shrink and such. And uh, thank you to everybody for listening. And again, thanks, John, for coming on. Subscribe to Asianometry as well. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by the YouTube channel and website Moore's Law is Dead. Moore's Law is Dead and Broken Silicon are trademarks of their creator, Tom. That guy is me, and I am indeed the creator, editor, writer, and showrunner of Moore's Law is Dead podcast videos, articles, and other media. However, I don't do this alone. Moore's Law is Dead is a team with Broken Silicon co-hosted by my brother, Dan, audio editing by Gerard Cortez, and special assistance by Carbon Cry. Find all of our information, including the information of sponsors you can support, at www.moreslawsdead.com. If you would like to send fan mail or hardware to us, please mail parcels to Moore's Laws Dead at P.O. Box 60632 in Nashville, Tennessee, zip code 37206. And speaking of fans, patrons are what makes Moore's Laws Dead content possible. The aging business model of spamming ads all over the content is dying. The future of media will be built on fans paying for the content they actually want to exist. And so if you have the extra money, but only if you do, please consider supporting us. For just $2 a month, you get access to the exclusive podcast, Die Shrink, voting on subjects of future podcast episodes, the ability to have your questions read aloud on Broken Silicon, Die Shrink, and Loose Ends, and of course, access to the Moore's Laws Dead Discord, full of like-minded people who would love to meet you and talk to you about computer hardware. I am one of them. Additionally, higher tiers get access to ad-free episodes of Broken Silicon, the entire back catalog of Flyover State's podcasts and other projects, Moore's Laws that is done, and thanks in the credits of videos and other perks as well. And hey, if you can't afford to support us, please do share Moore's Laws Dead videos and podcasts with friends and family on social media, Reddit, and forums. And give Broken Silicon a five-star review on Apple Podcast or your preferred podcast app. All of this really does help so much. And if you'd like to advertise on the podcast, hire Tom for consulting, or are a person of interest who would like to be a guest, please reach out to the email address mlhbdead at gmail.com. But as I said, this podcast would not be possible without its patrons supporting it. And so now it is time to give a personal thanks to the greatest of the fans. The following supporters are at the 10 gigahertz or higher producer levels. Brad Medlin, Drita Foll, A.V., Anthony Greffa, Greg Bataki, Muhammad Akwari, Brett Jones, Aaron Close, Little Germany, Jan Rauner, Daniel Hyde, Ivan K., Brian Riggleman, Dr. Foreman, Sam Miller, Deke, Thomas Rupp, The Mechanical Philosopher, Terrence Herod, SNES Chalmers, Tom Bailey, Greg G. Wanchuk, Andrew S., Frank Zielinski, Daniel D., MJB1, Eric Jackson, Justice Brennan, Sammy Good, Valko Malev, The Boss Haas, Nicholas Buckner, Spamtum G. Spamtum, Jonathan, Lord Starscream, General Trips, Blake, Franco Frederick, Matthew Lazier, Jensen Wang, Nathan Mose, Aziris, Gregory S. Acker, Dominique Cock, Jake Dude 23, Jake Martin, Cameron, Caillou Markelli, HeartForum.com, Original Ross, Slicky, Stefan, David Cowan, Ricky Tan, Christopher A. Butler, GZ Ziggy, Sarcastro, Stefan Hart, Jason B., Meat and Pork, Stu, Tim Robb, Luis Correa, Ian Clifford, Jesse Jeskowiak, Travis Gooding, Holden Mobley, Nanyan, Chris Rich, Deepest Learners, Mad, Suit Suit Taylor, Stefan Coates, Michael McGee, Chuck Glidden, Sammy Malas, Greg, Ah, Trini, Patrick Crow, Amiable Chief, Brett Summers, Jenny, Denny Nguyen, Stephen Dick, Tommy, 
Kundin, Brucha, Mark Mitchell, McDaffie, Delmaine Peterson, James Anderson, Y. Truey, Mark Raidmaker, Dave Scholes, 3DS Boy 08, Hal Buma, Narithiel, Matthew Landabazo, Stefan, Kolatic, Henry Zhang, Dretson N., Brendan O'Connell, The Grid, Michelle Pell, D31337 Antics, Jason Bowen, Noah Nicuela, Hexapuma, Christine, Jim Ferriera, Zabito 3, Desis, Thomas Atif, Klein Britannian, DNA Tech, 50C Desert, John O'Shea, Royce Meyer, Charles Russell, Reginine Aria, Morpheus, Teak Autumn, Jackson Miller, JSMMH, Sandy Garrido Saunderson, David Eason, Cal, Andre Jacques, Gaiman Since Reagan, Jeff Sadler, Jordan Simkovic, Loophole 35, Windstar, Joker, James I. Radner, Corey Leonard, Naya Alima, John Shim, Justin Bustle, Kelfin, Austin Haggerty, Roger Davies, Shea, Julian Leaked, Corey Chappell, Evan Dingle, C2, and of course, thank you to Sahara for the music.